0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post. Today, I'm joined by Michael Vickers, who's had a remarkable career, stretching from being a Green Beret to a CIA officer to a senior Pentagon official. He's written a quite extraordinary new memoir called By All Means Available, which is one of the best uh, Cold War memoirs of its kind that I've read. We'll get to the book in a minute. Uh, first, welcome, Mike. Thank you for joining uh, us.
0: Thank you, David. Pleasure to be with you.
1: So, uh, as I said, we'll, we'll we'll dig into the book in a minute, but I wanna start with some today questions on the news, if I can, which are, are related to many of the themes that are, that are in this book, but come out of President Biden's visit uh, tomorrow to the NATO summit at, at Vilnius and the war that's taking place in Ukraine between Ukrainian and and Russian forces. Um, I want to ask you uh, to begin by uh, going to something you say in your book powerfully, which is that uh, in in any engagement of American forces, it's important to have a strategy to win. Uh, You underline that in in different places, thinking about uh, Afghanistan combating the Soviets there, many other instances. So let me ask you, bluntly and directly, do you think we have a strategy to win in Ukraine?
0: I hope so, and I, I, I think we're on that path, but, you know, there's a difference between saying we'll uh, support them as long as it takes and that we really want to win. And one of the things that you see in very, very successful campaigns and wars is that we achieve a form of escalation dominance. That is, we... Uh, up to a certain level, uh, at the tactical level, conventional level, we out-escalate our adversaries. We did that in Afghanistan in the 1980s. We did that against Al-Qaeda with our drone campaigns uh, where they didn't really have a good response. And we've held back some things in both scale and the speed with which we've delivered in Ukraine, uh, delivered a lot of capability to them, but there's uh, things, fighter aircraft, uh, long-range surface-to-surface missiles. I was very pleased by the recent decision to see the uh, cluster munitions provided. I thought that was a great decision by uh, President Biden. But uh, I-, I sure hope we're in it to win it.
1: So we seem sometimes to have the opposite of escalation dominance, namely uh Escalation anxiety, we, 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 every time the Russians make a statement about possible use of tactical nuclear weapons or some other euphemism, there are sh- shudders almost uh, audible in Washington. Uh, do, you, do you think that we are needlessly worried about escalation and thereby, thereby giving the adversary here that uh, dominance and, and control of, of, the, of the strategic situation?
0: That's a great question. So, you know, against a nuclear equipped state, you have to take the threat of escalation seriously, of course, but it's something we dealt with in the Cold War, you know, should, uh, God forbid, general war have ever come, um, that you would have to deal with those threats. And the great value for the Russians, as you've seen in Ukraine, is to threaten the use of these weapons rather than actually use them, which would be of marginal utility and have a to tactically and have a lot of downsides strategically. And so I do think um, we've ceded some escalation dominance uh, to the Russians. But as we've learned, we've upped the ante and I, I hope we continue on that path.
1: Uh, and I'm going to put to you directly the question that, that people often put to me, Mike. Is the administration being too timid in Afga- in uh, Ukraine?
0: Well, timid may be too strong a word, but I think it has been reluctant um, to escalate in time or in sufficient scale. Uh, but it's eventually got there. You know, the administration has generally done the right thing. It's just it's just done it too slowly and it perhaps um, not enough scale.
1: So, as you know, tomorrow the summit will open in Vilnius, Lithuania. One of the issues that will be uh, up for discussion, although not really up for decision, is Ukrainian membership in NATO. Um, I think most people recognize that immediate membership simply isn't possible for a country that's Mm -hmm. at war with with Russia. But what do you think about the proposal that the Baltic states and Poland make for a a strict uh, and clear timetable? Uh, Is that a good idea?
0: Well, the general idea that you're going to need security guarantees to deter future aggression I think is right, and that we provide a pathway uh, for Ukraine uh, after the war is ended, uh, hopefully of course on their terms, um, is critically important. Whether a strict timetable is is wise or not, uh, you know, I'm not sure because when the war will end is, 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 is still uncertain. But, uh, you know, they have to meet the conditions. But if, you know, if any state now, a European state uh, deserves NATO membership, it would seem to be Ukraine.
1: Well, one more today uh, news question, uh, if you will. You spent the early part of your career thinking about waging war in the shadows, waging war uh, against Russia and preparing for that uh, th- through NATO. One extraordinary thing that's happened in NATO over the past year is that Finland has joined the alliance, and Sweden mm-hmm. seems at the gates. I was reassured last Friday by National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan that that's just a question of time, so we'll, we'll assume that that's going to happen. So I want to ask you, from, from a tactical standpoint, i got a, a kind of special forces perspective that you have what difference will it make if we have Sweden and Finland uh in NATO in terms of operational capabilities in terms of intelligence uh opportunities and 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 dangers just think out loud for a minute about what that actually means in terms of on the ground uh, uh military intelligence
0: sure we'll both have very good militaries and um Good intelligence capabilities. And of course, Finland has a long border um, with the Russian Federation. And so, you know, it was part of Putin's major strategic blunder to invade Ukraine to, to trigger this now. And so the, the northern flank of NATO is strengthened substantially in the, the Baltic states, uh, the Baltic Sea, uh, Poland, etc. You know, during the Cold War, we worried a lot about a um, Soviet invasion of Norway. Um, and that would be much more difficult now for lots of reasons for the Russians and so it's a, it, it's a substantial strengthening of NATO I think to have the to have uh, Finland and, and Sweden in
1: and if the price uh, for getting Sweden approved by the Erdogan government in, in Turkey was giving Turkey F-16s is it worth it?
0: Yeah, I think the uh, F-16s are worth it now. Erdogan has also raised the issue of EU membership, you know, which Turkey has wanted for some time and has been denied. And so that's a separate problem that I think uh, has to be dealt with by the European Union. But, uh, you know, NATO will be stronger with Sweden and stronger to have um, Turkey um, fully fully engaged in NATO.
1: Let's turn to this uh, terrific book. some of the most vivid passages uh, are about your early days, uh, the ten years you spent uh, as a green beret in Army Special Forces. One passage that especially struck me, forgive me, uh, I'm going to quote here, my favorite part of the room cleaning tra- room clearing uh, training was diving head first through a window and coming up shooting. And I I try to think, what person do I know in Washington who could write that sentence and probably actually mean it? There's another part of the book, uh, Mike, where you have an absolutely uh, hair-raising description of of free-fall parachuting when one of your colleagues mispacked your parachute. So I say this just so the audience will know. This is the real deal. Somebody says in your book that uh, you sure don't look like James Bond, words to that effect, but you actually were. And I want to ask you just to to share with our viewers a little bit about what it's like to actually be in these lethal, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, hair trigger situations where where you're, you know, you're you're in free fall parachute fall, uh, and you're tumbling around, and your shoot isn't it doesn't seem to be packed right. Just talk talk about the the real life of Mike
0: Vickers. Sure. So the the first um, passage you mentioned, I was on a training course with the British Special Air Service uh, in the late 1970s, and they were quite ahead of us in counterterrorism training. And so we sent uh, our operators to them to uh, learn these techniques. And uh, one of them, at first, I didn't believe we could do it, was to dive through a window and and, and come up shooting. But, you know, it, it worked. Uh, you know, or at least it seemed like a good idea when I was 24 years old. I'm, I'm not sure it looks so good anymore. And then, um, you know, um, free-fall parachuting, uh, Serious business and you know most of the time it goes right, but you can't have accidents. We lose operators um, to this day uh, from that and uh, I Did have a a rucksack actually it wasn't the parachute that was uh, packed lopsided Uh, You know it was to learn how to how to jump with rucksacks and weapons and it half of the sandbag inside the rucksack to give it 40 pounds of weight was bulging out of one side, and I knew this would be a problem, but uh, my instructor said it would be fine, and I went into a violent spin for about uh, 8,000 feet and finally stabilized myself on my back, and then thought, you know, I can't stay this way, I gotta flip over. So I managed to do that, got stable by contorting my body like Houdini, and then when I landed safely on the ground, repacked that darn uh, rucksack.
1: And did you repack the guy who'd uh, who'd done the packing in the first place? I was left wondering what happened to that gentleman.
0: You know, nothing happened. I survived. Had something happened to me, I think he might have been uh, uh, investigated, but uh, it's a good lesson about uh, don't take chances with things. I brought it to his attention and he said, oh, you'll be fine. Uh, he was an instructor and I wanted to pass the course, so I didn't say much. I knew I'd solve the problem and survive, but it uh, might have been a mistake on my part.
1: So you're obviously somebody who who is familiar with Guns, weapons—you've used them in war. Um, it's just been a part of your of your life through your career. I want to ask you, what may seem like a, an unusual question, but what do you personally think about people um, who have AR-15s, the civilian uh, knockoff of the military assault? Uh, weapon, in effect, as a, s- a sporting gun. Do you think that's uh, appropriate in our country? Does it trouble you? What What's your What's your thought?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's designed to be a weapon of war. It, you know, part of it comes from the capacity uh, of the magazine, but part of it is just the lethality of the projectile. You know, it was designed uh, for a lightweight projectile to tumble when it hit its target and caused more damage that way. And so that's why when people describe it as a weapon of war, it is, it's precisely what it is. And, you know, I can understand gun collectors with special permits, you know, who are responsible users want to have weapons like this, but we regulate all sorts of weapons, you know, machine guns, automatic weapons, um, et cetera. Um, and this seems to be in the category that ought to have um, more regulation given the uh, consistent damage that it does um, to, to innocence thank you for for
1: speaking to that and, and to ask you about the special operations forces you were in the army side of that um, one thing that I have noticed uh, as somebody covering the the uh, wars counterterrorism wars uh, in recent uh, years is the way we've relied maybe over relied on our special operations forces in exhausting uh, deployments for them and with the inevitable consequences uh, some degradation in the standards and, and behavior of those forces most notable case is that of Eddie Gallagher who, who was who was um, uh, sanctioned by, by, by the Navy SEALs, uh, brought into disciplinary hearings that President uh, Trump then uh, intervened in the middle of. But without necessarily asking to comment on the Eddie Gallagher case, what do you think about this uh, problem that uh, developed, if it, if it was, of overuse of special operations and, and the, the way in which that did seem to, to degrade standards of, of behavior and performance?
0: Yeah, so, you know, in the decade after 9-11, as Special Operations Forces became really central to to our wars, a war with Al-Qaeda and Afghanistan and Iraq, we realized we didn't have enough. And so we doubled SOCOM's budget, uh, or excuse me, we doubled the manpower, we tripled the budget, but we quadrupled the deployments. And that went on for a number of years. And, you know, where they were doing a one to one ratio, you know, uh, out to combat for three to six months, depending on the unit, back and then out again, and then doing that repeatedly for um, deployments that numbered in the well, very frequently in the double digits, you know, 10 to, to, to 15 deployments in combat zones. And that takes a toll. Uh, it takes a toll on families, takes a toll on the individual operator. Uh, you know, they they were central to our strategy in a lot of lot of ways. Uh, modern counterinsurgency uh, depended increasingly on special operations forces for raids, for working with tribal elements to deny rural areas, um, um, you know, et cetera. But uh, uh, you know, it comes at a cost, and you you know, you'll you'll always have some bad apples and in discipline problems, but I think there was a systemic issue and, you know, our commanders really tried to address this, uh, you know, imposing proper discipline um, when, you know, incidents occurred, um, but also um, setting up uh, family family programs and other things um, uh, and caring for our wounded operators to try to uh, deal with the stresses of combat, but you know it was imperfect. You know you can always do more.
1: So after ten years uh, as a Green Beret, you joined the CIA. You got some extraordinary uh, stories of that uh, time in your, in your career. One thing that I found fascinating, uh, Mike, is that you give a really glowing description of CIA Director William Casey, who is not often described in such flattering terms. And I wanted to ask you. Why it is that uh, as you look back you ad- admired in him or maybe to put it differently what it, it is as you look back that you admired in him?
0: Yeah, so he certainly was a complicated man and and you know, had his challenges and I, I I generally follow the thinking of my former boss at the Pentagon and uh, senior at CIA Bob Gates, you know who um thought that, you know, Casey really was focused on trying to defeat the Soviet Union and thought that it was possible after a while, didn't initially believe it, but but came to believe that. And so I think he was a historic figure. Um, you, know, you know, I think he clearly made mistakes, for instance, on Iran-Contra. Um, I was puzzled sometimes during my time at CIA that he wasn't as interested in some reforms or building a CIA for the future as much. He was so engaged in current operations. Um, But on balance, I think he was a very important director at an important time. Um, When I look at the uh, history of CIA and the directors and what they achieved, it's hard to deny his his achievements.
1: Thinking back on those Casey days, um, uh, and as you as you say, Kay, Casey wanted to kill Russians. He wanted he he wanted to win the Cold mm-hmm. War. He he wanted an end to 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 Soviet domination around the world, and he and he fought the the wars necessary to to to, to do that. Do you think that the agency has become more risk averse since then? And if the answer is yes, as I'm sure you think it it is. Is that a good thing?
0: So I think risk aversion, you know, is somewhat of a uh, a function of the political climate. And when, you know, sometimes you go too far, then you overcorrect. Um, and so there's periods when, you know, we're really on the strategic offensive. Um, during the 1980s, during the 1950s, uh, after 9-11, and then there's some, you know, often followed by periods of retrenchment, and uh, you know, so I think there's things that the current generation of officers can learn from previous periods of uh, uh, initiative, and you know, as the Romans would say, "fortune favoring the bold." Um, but you also need to have very disciplined trade craft, and and um, uh, you know, do what's. Feasible and not um, reckless. You know the the history of covert action is you have some spectacular successes, really extraordinary ones. You have uh, a lot of modest successes, and then you have some really spectacular failures. And the failures sometimes outnumber the uh, the successes. And so it's a you know it's a difficult business or a risky business. But you can't win if you don't um, if you aren't bold.
1: So let's let's talk about one uh, example of, of boldness and that's Afghanistan and our program to help the Af- Afghanistan Mujah- mujahideen who were fighting the Russians anybody who's seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War uh, although they may not know your name they they know your character you're you're the you're the smart guy you're the whiz kid at CIA who figured out how to Develop for the Mujahideen Mos- a winning strategy using Stingers, these shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles, and lo and behold, a couple years later, the Soviet Union was out of Afghanistan, and a couple years after that, there wasn't any more Soviet Union. It's a, it's quite a story. So I want you just to, to go to the heart of that and the the, the moments at which you began to think you know, we can do this differently, and rather than fighting for a draw, uh, we can actually give these people the ability to win this war.
0: Sure. So I was very fortunate. Um, at the time I was given the job, uh, the agency's budget for this program had been quadrupled, uh, largely by Congress and particularly by uh, Congressman Charlie Wilson, who was on the House Defense uh, Appropriation Subcommittee, you know the agency had asked for a 10% increase in budget, and it got a 300%, which is not your everyday occurrence in government. And so, and then I had two bosses: the chief of all of South Asia and then the chief of the Near East and South Asia, who. Uh, believed in me fairly early on and and progressively as the strategy seemed to be working. So you know the first thing was if we have quadrupled the resources, we ought to relook at our strategy and see what we could do. And then uh, one thing led to another. a national security council uh, directed review, changed our objective with a lot of input from CIA from um, uh, just imposing costs on the Soviet occupation to, driving them out to try to uh, uh, go for victory, uh, by all means available, that's where the title of my book comes from, Um, and then um, as we did the calculations and saw that we were having great success and our surge was uh, exceeding Gorbachev's surge in 1985, we added more and more to it, more sophisticated weapons, and then asked Congress, to essentially double our budget again. So it went up by a factor of almost 12 within 12 months. So it was a big, big escalation in both scale and speed, as I talk about. It. And it, kind of at each step of the way, I thought, what's necessary to make this work? In some cases, it was winning arguments in Washington. In other cases, it was with our foreign partners to get the Saudis to match us again dollar for dollar as we did this big increase to get the Pakistanis, the frontline state to go along, uh, to get the Chinese uh, and and Egyptians and others to go along, uh, the British to start supplying more sophisticated Western weapons and eventually the US. And so it took all those things. But within 12 months, I I was convinced, I guess early in that period, that we had a shot at winning. And then by the end of that period, by the end of that year, I really thought we were going to win.
1: It's, it's a heck of a story. I urge people to, to, to read it. So, suppose President Biden uh, gave you a call uh, after he gets back from Vilnius. He said, says, uh, Mike, I was reading your book on a plane, and I want you to give me, you know, one or two ideas to augment our strategy in Ukraine that can make this war more effective so that we can end up with a kind of success that you experienced in Afghanistan. How would you answer that?
0: Yeah, so I think it comes down to, again, um, scale and speed and trying to achieve um, within a realm, escalation dominance. And so what we haven't, again, I think the cluster munitions was a very good decision for two reasons, one, to give them more artillery, which is critical, but two, to help the counteroffensive breakthrough Russian lines which are, you know, really dug in with minefields and artillery and you you know, you got to get their heads down um, if you're going to break through. Um, But there's other things we could be doing that we haven't decided to do. The so-called Army Tactical Missile System has a range of almost 200 miles. Uh, We haven't supplied that, we could. Um, sur- longer range surveillance drones with weapons, uh, we've considered that, haven't supplied that. That would let them see deeper into Russian territory. Um, and then, um, you know, the fighter aircraft, which are on the way, but I would be doing everything I could to to speed that up in quantity. You have to have, you know, we wouldn't fight without local air superiority. And you know, asking the Ukrainians to do an offensive against a dugout an opponent like that is like asking him to fight nineteen eighteen style. So I would, I would get them into the post Desert Storm era, and uh, then I think they'd have a great chance at taking their territory back.
1: And I, I have to ask you, as a, a former CIA case officer, uh, tell us what you make of of Yevgeny Prigozhin's. I'm going to use Putin's words here: armed mutiny. And the the fact that he's he apparently is still in Russia, he's apparently according to the Washington Post today still talking to Putin. He's checking out his guns and money in Saint Petersburg. What the heck is going on here? What's what's your That's take good- on this?
0: So it's a great question. So I think you know they've lost across the board. It shows you know Prigozhin is certainly. Um, lost some of his power, at least, Uh, and Putin has been shown to be weaker than many believed. Uh, I think the reason he's still around and they're having these meetings and negotiations is Putin knows he needs Prigozhin's troops. They've been kind of the shock troops of his, uh, these mercenaries have been the shock troops of uh, Russian operations since they, you know, have concentrated on the East. And uh, he still needs them. And I, my guess, my hunch, I, I don't know this, is that while they've pledged their loyalty to Putin, they've made it clear they're going to fight, uh, you know, as long as they're intact and maybe bad things don't happen to their boss. You know, I'm sure Putin would like to kill Prigozhin, and he and he just doesn't think it's in his interest right now.
1: Fascinating answer. Best answer I've heard yet. So. Um... I want to close with a question from uh, an audience uh, member uh, in Connecticut named uh, Ramunas Bigelis, and forgive me if I mispronounced that, uh, who asks, how has the Ukraine war redefined the strategies and roles of the CIA, which I, I, I take to mean, uh, what role is the CIA playing in Ukraine and what role might it
0: play? Um, so. Had the Russians um, successfully taken Ukraine, where you had a resistance, then the president might have had a choice between a covert operation to support the Ukrainian resistance uh, or overt military. And he might have gone the covert route as we did in Afghanistan. But given the Ukrainians held, you know, this is really a conventional war that we're um, supporting. And so, um, CIA's role, you know, is more in the intelligence realm than the the, the secret war realm. Uh, you know, this is more of a DOD-led effort than, than CIA, though CIA has an important role to play. But all sorts of intelligence and, uh, you know, and things you can do, you know, one of the great strengths of CIA is a handful of people can make a difference sometimes, um, you know, going where others cannot go. And, you uh, uh, so I would, I would expect that uh, they're, they're doing some of that too. But uh, intelligence has been very important source of advantage uh, for the Ukrainians. A lot of it coming from open sources, the, the commercial satellite constellations and um, commercial uh, uh, drones, uh, etc. But uh, you still need someone to help fuse them and uh, everything else. So
1: we've come to the, to the bottom of, of, the, of the half hour. Uh, I want to, again, thank uh, Mike Vickers uh, for joining us today. The the book, uh, by all available means, is is quite uh, unusual and interesting. Mike, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, David. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.